Welcome to Inside Whitehall with me, James Starkey. And me, Jonathan Gullis. We knew that during the coalition years, quite a lot of decisions would have to be taken in a way which meant that the Liberal Democrats remained on board. So we knew that there was effectively a quad. Mm. David and George, uh, uh, Nick Clegg and Danny Alexander, who would make sure that we very rarely had, you know, open warfare between the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats around the cabinet table. There was only really one occasion I remember when that happened, which was during the referendum on AV, um, when obviously all the Lib Dems were in favour of AV um, and we were pretty much all against. That campaign, the No to AV campaign, also had Labour folk involved and some of the material that was generated by the campaign uh, was critical of Nick Clegg and critical uh, of Nick Clegg for breaking the promise on tuition fees. Mm. And I remember Chris Hune throwing down some of the no-to-AV propaganda on the cabinet table and saying, how dare you? Because obviously it hurt for him that the Lib Dems had had to, you know, take political flack on tuition fees for the coalition and now is being used against them in a political battle. But Nick Clegg, to his credit, and George Osborne said, this is the cabinet of the United Kingdom. We have business to transact. Let's have this conversation elsewhere. Boris didn't necessarily enjoy all cabinet meetings, but he ran them a bit like uh, editorial conferences on a newspaper. (laughs) So he loved the spark and the flow of ideas. And uh, if there was a particular line of argument that interested him, he would follow up. Whereas Theresa would would rarely comment on what someone had said until right at the end when she summed it up. Boris would provide a running commentary on what you were saying. He wouldn't interrupt. Well, he sometimes would, actually. (laughs) But what Boris would do is, you know... I would say something, or uh, Dom Rob would say something, whatever. He'd say, yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Rob said, no, no, I think, I think you're absolutely wrong about that. You know, we do need to, yeah, yeah, yeah. What was it Montezuma said? And, um, the, 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 and, and that made it entertaining. I know that there'll be some people who think, oh, well, that's chaotic. But that is, different prime ministers have different ways of working. And one of the ways that Boris arrives at a decision is he, he likes to have arguments made and then to reflect on them. What Boris hated were people coming along and just reading out the departmental mm. script without contributing anything individually. Ken Clark, because he'd been around the cabinet table before, if Ken wanted to speak on any issue and he wanted to speak for as long as he liked, and sometimes that was a long time, <laughs> <laughs> he could. So he'd say, David, on Libya, I don't think this is a good idea at all, and so on. Um, and, you know, his experience entitled him to that. Things that we really welcomed previously, things like the childcare policy, things like that that really do acknowledge where are people getting hit in the pockets and, and where is it holding back uh, growth, where is it holding back productivity, th- those sorts of things um, are, are really important. I think the other side of it is actually trying to say, look, there are, there are some really important issues around uh, gender around uh, a whole host of sort of what gets lumped under the sort of culture wars bracket um, and i think it's about saying that some of that stuff is is important and it's politically uh right that we talk about it and it's also politically salient in in polling terms like you you, you can't pretend that this stuff doesn't exist and, and people are right to ask sort of whose side are you are but i think to do that in a way that is tonally something that doesn't make people think you're either with us or against us. And, and, and I think that is, uh, as much as the policy, it's the tone that, that you're going to see uh, groups like the One Nation focus on. 
in 2021, we asked the Treasury from the Home Office for money to reform the asylum processing system. It was completely rejected, by the way. And we said, if you don't do this, you're going to end up spending more money, basically, because it'll take time, longer time to process the cases, et cetera, et cetera. You end up in a complete... Where, where would that cash have got? What was the money for? So digitalization, right? So the whole system is still very paper-based. And it was a labour of love, basically, to try and persuade the Treasury to give that money. But this is the, an operational point. Unless you digitalise and get rid of paper bases. And don't forget, of course, we had COVID, so people were not working, they're working from home, all this kind of stuff. You've got all the sluggishness that then creeps into the system. And and now people are saying, we got backlogs, et cetera, et cetera. So what do they do? They then announce resources, and it's a sticking plaster too late when actually we could have done the investment much earlier on um, to really move things on. So when I was a, a DEFRA, mm-hmm. It would be probably pretty much the height of the kind of rousing cabinet. You had checkers where Boris resigned. You had the Northern Ireland Protocol, that kind of stuff. And Playbook was, um, it was like a massive battleground Mm -hmm. for that as well. Late night stuff is great for us because exactly the papers have already gone to print. And then there's this period where we're really the only ones, the only show in town, the only ones who can... um, write stuff about um about what's happened at that particular time there was a story sort of two years before like in boris's first year saying that there were you know close that the, the letter threshold had been reached mm. and some there was a really funny quote from an mp saying well the story was right it was just two years too early <laughs> <laughs> in that sense maybe just write it and then yeah. it will eventually end up being true right so we can eventually it'll become true <laughs> well, i left school with the intention of becoming a police officer um, but again, most people would be familiar with my backstory would know that um, my, my dad was imprisoned for attempted murder when I was younger. Um, and, you know, I remember sitting doing that police exam and just being incredibly concerned about how on earth I explained to the kind of chief inspector who's conducting the exam um, that my dad's in prison for attempted murder. And so I passed two out of the three tests and, and failed the, the third test by half a mark. Um, and so my plan to go and become a police officer was absolutely in tatters. Um, and I kind of fell into doing an apprenticeship with local credit union. And, you know, that, that managed to kind of fit with some of my kind of my own politics about kind of social justice and kind of redistributing wealth and all these kind of things. Um, but at no point was was becoming a politician on the radar. Um, and it was only when I was 18 and I'd finished my apprenticeship, a by-election had been called in the constituency I now represent. And the guy who was elected, you know, took me on as his caseworker. But even at then, I had no expectations of becoming a, you know, a member of parliament. I was really fortunate. I was um, I was a whip in the 17 to 19 parliament, so the, the kind of Brexit parliament. And, you know, that was fascinating. One of my biggest regrets, actually, as a politician is that I never kept a journal um, because, I mean, I remember seeing some some really strange things. I remember watching Guido Bebb, who was a Tory MP, resign as a minister in front of me, just handing his letter to the government whip in the voting lobby and saying, I cannot support the government tonight, and then walked in with us in the opposition lobbies. And that was, that was a kind of hugely symbolic moment. But I think we might have to go further in Rwanda Mark II. And the big problem I think we have is in the particular way we've designed the scheme. Because the scheme isn't a, you lose your appeal, we send you there. We send people, we want to send people there before their status is determined. They're being processed there. Exactly. Now, there are ways around that, I think. You can either do the appeals process here and just do it in, in the UK and then send them out if they lose their appeal. Or you might have a system whereby 
you have the, the first application determined here. And then before they appeal, you send them there and they have a right of appeal from Rwanda. In my view, I thought the Rule 39 order was bizarre because the judge somehow thought that there was an irreversible harm in sending somebody to Rwanda, whereas, in fact, all we need to do is put them on a plane back to London. That's not an irreversible harm. And therefore, you know, I query the judgment, but I also query whether or not if we, you know, didn't have Rule 39, whether, in fact, domestic courts would say, well, hold on, don't do anything until we've resolved the issue. It's the one that really does try and engage the public. Mm. So um, I suppose some people, if you're being critical, would just say it schedules the debates on the public petitions. But I think it could be so much more than that because it can be that bridge, that link uh, between Parliament, you know, Westminster MPs like Jonathan and I, and and the public. Um, I do remember the night that it all came together. Um, and I was in number 10 when the phone call, it was a phone call actually between the PM and Graham Brady. Um, and I was there, and then obviously off the back of that, we were then sitting and strategizing what we're going to do. And uh, as tempting as it is to give away the insides of that, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm dyslexic, so I'll probably never write a memoir. But if I do, I'll save it for that. But but look, we then spent, yeah, we we then mapped out how we thought we should work it, what we should do, and and deliver it. And obviously, Theresa got a very big win in that conference vote. One of the really interesting things that had never been revealed before was that one of the big donors to Keir Starmer was Dale Vince who also was a big donor to Just Stop Oil, right? We sat on that story for weeks and weeks and weeks, like all over the Christmas period, for instance. I was really nervous that it was going to get spotted. It was sort of there in the numbers. And if you looked at the numbers and squinted and, you know, looked in the right way, you'd see that this guy was actually a massive donor to both. Now, um, it was a big, impactful story that actually helped shift the conservative attack line against the Labour Party. It, it, Ultimately, the reporting of it led to Delvin's ending his funding of Just Stop Oil. Um, but did we get that out the door the second we spotted it? No, I think there was like two, two and a half months from it being discovered to it being broadcast. We want it all to go in one big package so we could have the biggest impact. And, you know, I'd like to think it did have that impact. Um, but we had to sit on a lot of those things for a long time. Every morning I woke up worried, bluntly, that um, we might have, we might leave, that we might lose it. Thank you to everyone who's tuning in and listening. Thank you as always for doing that. Please, however, make sure that you leave us a review and you leave us a rating. That's super, super important. Make sure that you hit that subscribe button on however it is that you listen to your pods. And finally, make sure that you go on to X, formerly known as Twitter, and make sure you follow us on at Whitehall Pod UK, where you can interact with us as well. And it's a pleasure, and we'll see you soon.